Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, I don't know how many of you military guys, um, whenever you see the flag, old glory waving like that, don't you want to, you know what I mean? I mean, you have to understand that we're celebrating the 4th of July coming uh, this Thursday. And the Lord has used this nation. I don't know how many of you realize that the United States of America has sent out more missionaries than any other nation. And it's because of the freedom we have. And we have gone throughout the world to take the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I think we can be very thankful that we live in a nation that gives us the freedom that we do have. I mean, you can quit your job if you want. You can go to a new job if you want. You can go to college if you want. You can stay home if you want. You know what I'm saying? We have that kind of freedom. Aren't you thankful for that, for the freedom we have? I really am. Praise the Lord. And you think of those, um, you know, those patriots that um, took that stand many, many years ago for this nation, and I'm very thankful. So anyway, uh, we are in um, Leviticus, and we're going to be in chapter 4, picking up with verse 22. I just want to mention there will not be uh, Wednesday evening service this week because of the 4th of July. In fact, the 4th of July, believe it or not, is my mother-in-law's birthday. She was born in front of City Hall in a taxi cab on the 4th of July, and it'll be 98 years ago, right? 98 years ago, and on her way to the hospital, got caught in a parade <laughs> when she was pregnant. So there you go. And, um, and she's been a firecracker ever since, but uh, we're going to have a, a wonderful celebration in the 4th. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and there's no one but you that can bring salvation. There's no one but you that can bring the peace that we so long for. And now come, Lord, and minister to us, I pray, through your word, I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So we're going to be in Leviticus 4, starting with verse 22, but there's a few verses I'd like you to look at, and if you would first open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, verse 24, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so this is talking about the fact that God has commanded us to come together as a body of believers and for the very purpose of exhorting and encouraging one another in the Lord. Now go to Romans 15.4. In Romans 15.4, it says this, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So this particular portion in Romans is telling us we need to study the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, because those things that were written before were written for our learning. And you have to remember, when Romans was being written, the New Testament hadn't been canonized yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. So we need to study the Word of God. And then in 2 Timothy 
2 Timothy 2.15, and that's right after 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15. And I love how it starts off in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent. Diligent means persistent. It means committed. Work hard at it. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, one of the things that I, I think about is how you might look at me and think, oh, he's so smart and it's so easy for him to learn and to do things and this and that. I have to work hard at everything I do. When I was in college, I probably had to study twice as hard as anyone else because really, I'm, I'm very serious. I have to really work at something to get it. Thankfully, once I get it, I got it. But I have to work at it. And this is why it's telling us in, in Timothy that we need to be diligent. And we need to rightly divide the word, word of truth. We need to study the word. It's not enough for you guys to come here on Sunday morning and hear me teach from the word of God and think that's your weekly dose. You need to be studying the word of God on your own. As a matter of fact, you need to be studying the word of God to keep me honest. Isn't that what scripture says? You know, they received the message with all eagerness. And here you have Paul the Apostle preaching. But daily they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. I want you to know. And, you know, it's not that I'm, I'm trying to deceive you. And I want you to know that what I'm sharing is the truth of God's word, not just my own opinion. And so study. I mean, you guys know approximately what we're going to be covering the following week the following week, so you should go through your Bibles and really read through it and maybe make some notes so that when you come to church, boy, you're ready. You're ready. And so we have to understand that according to these verses of Scripture, we gather together to worship God, to encourage one another, and to be taught from the Word. That's why we come together. And actually, you know, you might not think this, church should be the highlight of your week. My darling wife says that Sunday is what the rest of the week's all about. I mean, I actually am excited to come to church. And you say, well, yeah, that's because you're the preacher. When I first got saved, before I was a preacher, I couldn't wait to go to church. We went to Sunday school. We went to church. We went to Wednesday evening. We went to any special teachings they had. We're, the doors were open in there. What are you doing here? I'm in, you know. And so... It's important for you guys to understand it's not a matter of God saying, you better go to church. It's a matter of you can go to church. It's exciting. It's wonderful to know that you can gather together around the Word of God, be taught and to be encouraged in His Word. Now, all of these scriptures that we're going to be looking at, you know, getting back to our portions today in Leviticus, they're all about forgiveness, all these portions in Leviticus we've been reading are all about forgiveness, and they all point to Jesus Christ. You have to remember that what we read in the Old Testament isn't just a different Bible. What we read in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. It was preparing the world, preparing the people of God, and then the people of the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand that it is so important for us to look at verses like we're going to be reading, and when I read it, you're going to be thinking, oh, he's read that same topic over and over and over again. 
But it's important because it's all about Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made that our sins might be forgiven. I don't know about you, but I'm so thrilled that my sins were forgiven, are forgiven, and are being forgiven. I'm thankful for that. I mean, it'd be wonderful if the day we got saved, we never sinned again, wouldn't it? Not true, though. The day we get saved, you know, we're saved and our sin is forgiven, singular, our sin nature. And, but then we have sins, of course, that we have to be continually confessing of. And um, now listen carefully. Forgiveness of sin leads to our justification, but our justification, you have to understand, came through Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody, right? He died for sin. You know, there it is, the free gift of God. Your sin can be forgiven. He died for the world, it tells us, for everybody. But in order for you and I to be personally justified, we have to receive it. That's the important thing. It's not a matter of, well, you know, my parents were good Christians. Well, that's wonderful. But what about you? You know what I'm saying? We have to understand it's our own personal walk and relationship with the Lord. Here's what it tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, who was talking about Jesus Christ, who was delivered up because of our offenses. He died on the cross because of our sins and was raised because of our justification. So by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I are justified before a righteous and holy God. Isn't that amazing? Because here's what we have to understand. There's nothing you could do to get it. There's nothing you could or can do to deserve it. Jesus paid it all. He paid the full price. And all we have to do is receive what he's done for us. How amazing is that? It's wonderful. Now we're going to be noticing. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you have to be aware of. Everything that was written was written for our learning, as we just read. But you have to read carefully because there are things in these portions of Scripture that can just you can miss that are so important. Because when we had the sin offering for the whole congregation, for the whole you know nation of Israel in relationship to the whole world, that sin offering was taken into the holy place. The blood of that sin offering was taken into the holy place, right? And remember, it was... On the altar of incense, they would, they would put the blood and it was taken right into the holy place. The other sin offerings that we're looking at, the sin offering for the priest, the sin offering for the leaders, which we're going to be looking at, and the sin offering for the common people, that was all. That, the blood offering was given outside the holy place in the court of meetings. It was in the court where the altar was of sacrifice. That was before he went into the holy place. So you might think, well, why was it that for the sins of the nation, the blood was taken into the holy place, but then for our, you know, our personal sins that we're confessing, that blood was just outside in the court. There's a reason for it, because everything in the Bible has purpose. Because we have to understand that Jesus Christ died for our sin once, and for all. And he took his blood in the tabernacle and sprinkled it 
for us. He went into the holy place on our behalf. And so because of that, you and I are justified before God. We are born again. But even as Christians, we still deal with sin, which is what's being talked about here. And that doesn't have to be taken into the holy place because Jesus already did that once and for all. But we do have sin that we have to take as a sacrifice before God. And we make our sacrifice by confession and repentance. That's the important thing that we need to remember. And um, in Romans chapter 6 and verses 10 and 11, it says, For the death that he died, talking about Jesus Christ, he died for sin once for all. Only one sacrifice. Jesus is is not sacrificed daily. His sacrifice was once and for all people. Now, not all people are saved, but he died for the sin of all people so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no one who is eliminated from the grace of God. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the life that he lives, because Jesus is alive at the right hand of God the Father, he lives to God. Then, verse 11, listen to this. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. We're dead to our sin. We're alive in Christ Jesus. But the fact is, there has to be an admission of sin. Otherwise, there's no purpose for the sacrifice of confession and repentance unless there's an admission of sin. And so we have to be open for the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to show us where there might be sin in our lives. In fact, we're going to be talking about unknown sin here or unrecognized sin here in just a moment. But the Holy Spirit is always desiring to show us those areas that we need to change in and to show us those things that we might be doing that are uh, not in keeping with God's Word. So now we're picking up in Leviticus 4 and go to verse 22. And we're going to be looking at... Last week we we looked at the priest. The week before we looked at the sin of the whole congregation of Israel. And today we're going to be looking at... um, Well, the rulers and also what we might call the common people, like you and I. Uh, Leviticus 4, starting with verse 22. When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God and anything which should not be done and is guilty, he's guilty even though it was unintentional, Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Notice that. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offerings. That's outside the holy place. And burn its blood, and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offerings. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. Pay attention to that. So the priest shall make atonement for him uh, concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. Verse 27, if any one of the common people, that's you and I, 
sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offerings. Then the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. Once again, outside the holy place. And pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all his fat as fat is uh, removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar of sweet, uh, as a, for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering, and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offerings. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. Once again, that's the altar outside the holy place. And pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the uh, offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for the sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. You know, we think, wow, we're reading this same topic over and over again, but w look at what it's about. It's, it's about the forgiveness of sin. What's more important for you and I than the forgiveness of sin? Because here's the point, okay? You could become the most successful, wealthy person in the world, and maybe you are the most beautiful person in the world, and maybe you're the most popular person in the world, but you're not saved. Guess what? One day you're going to die, and you're going to go to hell. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. So often when we talk about Hell, or we, we mention the fact that the Bible talks about hell, we think, well, that is so discouraging and that is so negative. No, it's not. Because the whole reason hell is mentioned in the Bible is to tell us we don't have to go there. That's the reason it's there. It's mentioned so often. You don't have to go to hell. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. From what? Sin and death. Hell. And so we have to realize that you can have all the success in this life, and if you're not saved, you have nothing. Or you could be just a normal, common person like we're reading about here, just kind of bumbles along in life and gets through life, but you're a believer. Man, when you die, you're right in the presence of God, and you're going to experience glory that you've never even imagined. It's going to be absolutely amazing. I was talking to a brother before church, and, uh, you know, the Bible does tell us that when we all get to heaven, we'll know one another. It says we shall know and be known and so forth. But let me tell you something. When we first get to heaven, when Jesus brings us up there, either in death or the rapture, and we're standing before the throne of God's grace and mercy, 
We're not going to be saying, hey, Bill, how you doing? John, Jill, hey, how's it going? How's it going there? You know, you know and there's Jesus and, and you know, the, the Trinity up in front of us. We're not going to be doing any of that. When we get to heaven and we stand before the throne of grace, this is how we're going to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't care who's by me. God, you know, it's going to be amazing because... No more tears, no more sorrow. The joy is going to be unspeakable beyond what we can understand. If you think of the, of the most fun thing you can do, I know right now Frank and Marty are thinking of dirt bikes, but if, if, you, if you can think of the most fun thing that you enjoy doing, it can't even compare to the joy you're going to be, be feeling in the presence of the Lord. In his presence is the fullness of joy. Amen. Now, when it speaks to the rulers uh, that have sinned, this likely means anyone who held a position of authority in the camp of Israel. And this sacrifice was similar to all the sacrifices we've previously discussed for the congregation, except only the fat was burned, not the rest of it. Why? Because it tells us it was burned as a pe- burnt as a peace offering. There's nothing more beautiful than having peace with God. There really isn't. You know, any of you who are married understand that the term that says, you know, you know, we used to read the books to our kids when they were small, and maybe our parents read them to us, and it says, and they got married, and they lived happily ever after. That's a fairy tale, and that's why the books are called fairy tales. Marriage is hard work. It's a working relationship, Right? And so we have to understand that there's nothing that causes more tension and difficulty in a relationship when there's a barrier between us. Any of us who have been married, unless we're liars, there have been those times that, boop, there's been a barrier there. For whatever reason, whatever the cause, there's that, like, barrier that, you know, goes up. And how do you feel? Life It's crappy. Life, life, is, life sucks. You know, when you have that kind of barrier there, it's like, yeah, yeah I'm going to do this. Yeah, gonna, you know, and then once the barrier is gone, you know, and you have peace with one another, it's like, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know what I'm saying? Well, here's the point. We in our spirit and in our soul, we recognize that there's a barrier between us and God. I mean, even as believers... At times, just like even if you're married, even as believers, at times, there might be a barrier between you and your God. But here's the difference between that and marriage. In marriage, it can be both sides. In our relationship with God, it's always us that puts the barrier up. It's always us. And you just kind of feel out of sorts with the Lord. Then all of a sudden, that barrier is removed. And you have peace with God. And how is that barrier removed? Confession. Admission of sin. We have to still make sacrifice for sin, but it's the confession of our lips. It's the sacrifice of sin that we make. Now, notice the unintentional sin and sin of ignorance can be committed by anyone, by the congregation, by religious leaders, and by, you know, civil leaders, and also by the common person. 
And in every case, a blood sacrifice still needed to be made and by the laying on of hands. And remember what I shared with you before. When you lay your hands on the sacrifice, as, as it, you know, the throat is slit, that's how, they, that's how they would kill the sacrifice. What you're saying is, this sin is mine. I own this sin. And this blood that is being drained out is what I deserve. It's for the forgiveness of my sin. That's why we lay hands on it. It's me. And so that kind of confession of sin is so important. Even if it's unintentional sin, even if it's sin of ignorance, it still has to be done. And um, now understand, unintentional sin is not necessarily sin of ignorance. For instance, if, if we were under the Old Covenant, which we're not, but if we were under the Old Covenant, you went to someone's house and you had a nice roast beef dinner and didn't realize that that uh, cow was sacrificed to an idol. You committed a sin according to the law. But it was unintentional. You didn't do it on purpose. And in the same way, there might be things that you and I, as believers under the New Covenant, that we do unintentionally. We didn't realize it. You know, and there's a sin. We need to take it before the Lord. Now, where the sin of ignorance is not knowing something is sin, okay? That's, I don't even know it's sin. Unintentional sin is not realizing that we're in a sinful situation. But we have to bring both before the Lord as a sacrifice, as a sin offering, and to be forgiven. And um, whatever type of sin committed... And by whom is irrelevant. It needs to be atoned for. In Romans 3, 23 through 24, Romans 3, 23 through 24, we all know this portion. Once I start it, you can quote it. For all have sinned. And who's included in all? All. <laughs> for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by the grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Wow, we're, we're redeemed by the free gift that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the offering of sacrifice for sin, of course, is confession. Confession of sin that we've committed. Without confession, there can be no forgiveness of sin. That's why it tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and I always tell people, this is, is, is my verse, and it says, if, it starts off with that conditional conjunction, if. In other words, there has to be. You have to do something. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I haven't sinned. I'm perfect. I haven't done anything wrong. Yes, you have. And so you better confess it because then it's going to be forgiven. All of this, of course, is referring to something far beyond what these sacrifices were talking about in the Old Testament or in Leviticus. It's all looking forward to Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Isaiah the prophet 
is prophesying that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come for the atonement of the sin of the world. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, because remember, Jesus Christ had a human soul, but he was perfect, without blemish. God was incarnate into the flesh. When he was fully God, fully man. He shall see his seed, in, in talking about you, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many. That's you and I. For he shall bear their sin and iniquity. He bore our sin and iniquity. He did it all. The pleasure that he has is looking at his children, looking at you and I, those of us that belong to him. That gives God pleasure. It brings him joy to know that we're in his family. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous, righteousness of God in him. How amazing is that? He had no sin. We had all kinds of sin. He took our sin upon himself and died for our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. How amazing is that? Understand, you and I, according to God's word, we're considered righteous and holy before the Lord, but not because of our own endeavor but because of what Jesus Christ has done and because his forgiveness is continuous. It's absolutely so amazing. And um, we also must remember that his sin offering wasn't temporary. You know, in the Old Testament, under the law, they had to offer sin offering, you know, for committing whatever sin, and then they go home and they committed another sin. They had to bring another sin offering. It had to be done over and over and over again. But this is what it tells us in Hebrews 7, uh, well, actually, I'm just going to encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. We just finished Hebrews in our Wednesday night study. We're in James now. And uh, Hebrews was an awesome study. But if you look through Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, it makes it clear that he doesn't have to offer himself as a sacrifice over and over and over again. He did it one time. You and I are forgiven. Now... But we also have to remember, even though you and I are forgiven our sin, singular, our sin nature, our sin, and our, our rebellion against God, that's our sin, and we're saved and we're going to heaven, even though our sin has been forgiven, because we fall to sins, a righteous and holy God is looking for us to make appeasement for that sin, and that appeasement is simply by confessing our sin. Even maybe some sin that we don't realize were, were you know, sin of ignorance. And, and you know, and, and even David recognized this. And in Psalm 19, this is what David wrote in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. Who can understand his errors and all the mistakes that we make? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. So even King David was aware of the fact that there might be sins that we are ignorant of. Sometimes there's sin that we're willingly ignorant of. 
You know, you, you at times have people in, in churches today that will say, well, times have changed. I know that people felt that was sin back then, but we're in a different time now. It's really not sin. Yes, it is. It is still sin. And it still needs to be confessed and repented of. Because if there's no repentance, then your confession of sin is just presumptuous. And you really, it's disingenuous is what it is. Why would you confess a sin if you're not desiring to repent of it, to change? Repentance means to make a 180 degree turn. And I don't know what anyone's dealing with. You don't know all that I'm dealing with. But we're all dealing with something. And so we have to be willing to make this kind of uh, confession. And all this shows us that God cares about every person. And he provides a means of forgiveness and atonement for every person. And one of the things that's interesting you'll find if you really study these portions closely, it wasn't just men that made offerings of sacrifice for sin. It was women as well. God was just as concerned about the souls of women that he is and was men. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal about that? Most pagan religions don't consider women unequal standing. Did you know that? I mean, even among the Mormon religion, and that's something that's pretty prevalent here in this country. Did you know, ladies, if you were a Mormon, that you cannot go to heaven unless your husband calls you? That's why a Mormon woman, you know, the Mormonism has a high divorce rate. And one of the reasons is, is that a woman's married to a guy and she thinks, I don't think he's a very good Mormon, and so he's not going to go to heaven. If he doesn't go to heaven, he can't call me. So I'm going to marry someone who's a good Mormon. And so many of the other pagan religions, Islam, and I mean, so you can go on and on and on. And women do not have equal standing with men. Christianity was the first true faith that put women on equal standing with men. You have to understand that. There are different responsibilities that God gives men and and that God gives women, but it's not a matter of discrimination. It's just the different responsibilities that he gives them. You know, like if you go to work and you say, well, why does my boss have an office all to himself and I'm in a cubicle? I don't think that's right. Well, the reason your boss has an office and you have a cubicle is because that's your job description right now. You know, maybe one day you'll work your way up and be the boss. I don't know. But the fact is, God gives certain requirements for women. He gives certain requirements for men, especially in relationship to marriage. But he calls all of us to serve him fully with our whole heart. He calls all of us to set aside everything in our worship of him. Because, ladies, here's the thing. If you're a married woman, even though the Lord has commanded you to be obedient to your husband in all things as unto the Lord, you have to understand it's as unto the Lord. Your first commitment is to Jesus Christ. And if your husband was asking you to do something that was contrary to the word of God, you can tell him, pound salt. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) But you understand my point. You don't have to do anything that is contrary to the word of God. And so... It's so beautiful when you read these portions over and over, and it seems like you're saying the same thing. It's an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Who is captive? Every one of us. You know, all you have to do is look at the world. You know, you might look at these movie stars and, and maybe, you know, some of the, those people that you see on the screen and you think, oh, man, they've got life knocked. No, they don't. Look at their lives. Their lives are a train wreck. I'll tell you what. I'd rather be sitting in my little screen room behind my house than sitting on a villa overlooking whatever, you know, uh, the, the, you know and having the peace that I have with the Lord and with my family, then having all of those things and having nothing. You know, Vi and I, we don't actually have regular TV. We just have YouTube on our TV, and we, we watch um, very educational, you know, viewing. We, we love to watch those things. Like last night we watched um, movie stars that ended up becoming homeless, and, you know, great, great viewing. But anyway, my point is, just to give one example, it talked about this one actor, Nicolas Cage. Some of you might know who he is. And, uh, but he became very wealthy, and he got into buying houses. He bought a Catholic, he bought Phil, he bought all these houses all over the world. And here's the problem. He didn't have enough money to pay for it, so he ended up going bankrupt and lost everything. Putting their hope in the things of this world. Putting your hope in the things of this world is literally on shaky ground. You can either build your house on the sand or build your house on the rock, the foundation who is Jesus Christ. I'd rather have Jesus than I would all the riches of this world. And you might be thinking, well, you're just saying it. No, I absolutely mean it. Because the peace and the joy I have in life might be very simple, but I have peace and joy. A lot of people might have a lot of things and they have no peace and joy. So I encourage each one of you as believers to really commit your life to Christ. Commit your life to the study of his word and to understand that the greatest gift you have, the greatest gift you shall ever possess is Jesus Christ. And if you're not saved, if you're not a believer, if you're someone who knows about Christianity, but you've never really received that free gift, it's free, doesn't cost you anything, gift of salvation, today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day to receive that gift. Well, how do I do that? Is that just comp- It must be really complicated. Do I have to go through catechism classes and everything else to become a Christian? No, it's very simple. You can just sit right where you are right now if you're not a believer and say, Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Come in and take over my life. That's it. Because here's the thing. It's not a matter of how simple our confession might be. It's how great his possession is of our soul when we do that. How amazing our, our God is. It's a beautiful day. Sun just came out. You know, Jesus Christ is coming back. We're born again. And if you're not, we can be born again right now. Beautiful day. Thank you, Jesus, for this time of um, studying your word and just a wonderful, wonderful way that your Holy Spirit's able to minister to us. And now come by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and fill us to overflowing that we might see and know your presence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And God bless you, my friends.